I've already been greatly encouraged today and uh, I hope you have been as well. Uh, I want to draw your attention to page 11 uh, in a worship guide. Um, page 11 and 12 are some definitions uh, that may be helpful to you um, as you as we continue to work through uh, Matthew 24 and 25. Uh, you'll notice in there most of these definitions uh, I just took straight from a little piece that John Piper had written. They were simple, kind of to the point, would be helpful. Um, we're not going to preach through those, but I thought at least uh, as we begin to uh, look at the text in Matthew 24 that uh, these may be helpful to you just in the days ahead uh, as you think through various uh, eschatological events and, uh, and various views. Um, we're not here to uh, we're not here to establish a particular view. The one thing that I found in studying Matthew 24, and we're going to read it in just a moment, uh, is like I normally do, and I think, I think most folks who are wise would do this, would be that as we study a passage of Scripture, we try to get our minds and our hearts around it. And we try to discern what the text is saying. Most of the time after that's done, um, I will generally then go and search out people that I trust and folks from the past and uh, folks from hundreds of years ago and, and then even some contemporary people that I trust and uh, have, uh, have great respect for to see am I thinking in line with the way that others have thought. Because there's always a danger to look at a text and, and come up with some kind of new idea. Uh, people write books on those new ideas all the time. The problem is, is no one else <laughs> agrees with them. I mean, you say, well, does that mean that they're wrong? Well, it just, it means that in most cases, they are probably wrong uh, if it is something out there that no one else has ever thought of. And you say, well, can't people be that way? I'd say that when we come to the issues of Scripture, um, heresies began by people having new ideas about things that no one else in Orthodox Christianity thought. Uh, and uh, so I just check. Uh, I did with this. <laughs> the problem is, is they're all over the board. <laughs> so I said, okay, well, uh, I, I'm not sure where uh, this one that I love and trust and respect and most of the time would 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 kind of agree with I would say well I don't know whether I agree with them or not because this other person over here that I love and respect and and uh, and and would pay attention to uh, they believe a little something different so uh, what I decided to do today was forget about all that um, and just look at what the text has to say that is pertinent to us today and it has been pertinent for every other believer before us and will be pertinent to every believer and every lost person who comes after us. Um, and those things will be true. And to try to wade through all the other stuff that may or may not be so, 
the end result is the same. So for instance, if you're looking at Matthew chapter 24, uh, and you were to look at conservative Bible preachers and scholars, uh, some of them would say that Matthew 24, in that, that Jesus is, Jesus is speaking specific to uh, end times, meaning a time that is still not yet, and that he's speaking in the third person, and it sounds like that he is referencing his disciples and giving his disciples answers, but in fact that it is more of a prophetic word where the you is the you of the day when that time comes, as prophets did at times. You know, prophets, we go back and look in the Old Testament, uh, prophets at times gave prophecy that you read it then, but it wasn't for that season necessarily. It was for a group of people that would come later that would read it, and then that you would be specific to them, and they would know that because what had been spoken of was being fulfilled right there in their presence. Um, and if you want to look at Matthew 24 in that way, I think it's fine. Again, the points that Jesus makes uh, don't change. They don't change. There are others who would say that, and when we read this, that he is speaking at sometimes directly to his disciples and answering their questions, knowing that their questions would be our questions today. If we didn't have anything else before us, we would want to know these things. And that there's, their questions were our questions. But at times he's speaking to them about things that are actually going to take place in their lifetime. And then there are other portions of Matthew 24 that point away from them that will not take place in their lifetime. And again, I would say that when we read this, you may already have a particular lens that you are looking at this text through. And if you do, that's good. I don't know that that's hurtful or harmful. Uh, I would just say that what we want to do today is to look and say, okay, what are the things that Jesus says that no matter how you look at this text, it says what it says and it has bearing on us. Hopefully, as we read through this, um, that'll make sense. I also want to preface this this week and next week as we deal with chapter 25 that we are dealing with what is known as the Olivet Discourse. Okay, Jesus, most of what is said here in chapter 24 and 25, uh, he is speaking to his disciples and he does that at the Mount of Olives. The last week of Jesus' life, we know that he spent most of his days at least through Wednesday in the temple and at nights they would retire uh, in the Mount of Olives. And they camped out and they slept there. And when they were not in the temple and not in the city proper, that's where they were. So this is known as the Olivet Discourse. Uh, probably one of the long, longest pieces of Jesus' teaching on one particular subject. Um, the background of this, we looked at last week, but remember Jesus came into Jerusalem on Monday. He went to the temple. He ran the merchants out, did away with all that was taking place there in the temple court. And he set up shop and he began to heal and deal with people as he had. Here was the, 
the Son of God, the one that we declared king as he was coming into Jerusalem, uh, and he's right there in the temple doing what you would expect God to do. He cleans out all that is not a part of him, and then he does his work, his miraculous work, and he teaches. Um, you'll be reminded that in chapter 22, he the next day, on Tuesday, is back in the temple. And that's where, if you will, and I kind of thought about it this week, it's, it's almost like, a, uh, it's like a, a, a boxing match where the champion stands in the ring and pretty much says, okay, just come on, any of you, all of you, one of you at the time, ever how you want to do it, just come on and, uh, and let's see where we go. And they all step in the ring with him, so to speak, and they take their best shot. Uh, he doesn't even have a glancing blow, never brushes him, uh, and then he will point back to them and deliver his blow to them. And one by one, they came in. The Pharisees sent their young protégés in with the Herodians, and they took their best shot, and they step out of the ring. Sadducees come in and they give him his best shot. They, they throw everything they have at him. And they step out of the ring. And then the lawyer steps in and he does the same thing. And Jesus is still standing in the ring. And when he finishes up in the ring, we find that no one else, the Scriptures tell us, step into the ring with him. It says no one else even, even offers to ask a question or try to trap him. Why? Because they know they can't. And then last week, we see that he is, after all of that, on Wednesday he is back in the temple and there, and then he stands and all of those who would come to him, they're still standing there, uh, and he passes judgment on the Pharisees incredible an incredible encounter there and that's what takes place in 23 and I want us to pick up as we begin reading here in verse 37 of chapter 23 what he says and how that is the backdrop for what we hear when we move into 24 and we will read uh, the first 14 verses of chapter 24 um, but picking up in verse 37 of chapter 23 Still in the temple, okay? Just cast judgment, pass judgment uh, on the Pharisees. And, and mind you, on the Pharisees and all of us who bear uh, those Pharisaical attitudes and, and, and have that trademark on us. And then he says, he looks out, looks there, if you will, old Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. Hear that word. I want you to hear it. He says, See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, 
you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be one left, there will not be left here, one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Pause there for just a minute. I'm not sure how the disciples left out of the temple. I've tried to think about it myself. There was such a heaviness in Jesus standing there before all the religious leaders gathered in the temple. And as we said last week, Jesus, if you will, He took the seat of Moses. The place of judgment and the seat of judgment, and rightfully so. And right outside there in the court with all people present, all of those who were in there, including His disciples with the scribes and Pharisees, He is looking at them eyeball to eyeball, if you will. It had to be tense. No one does that. No one called out the religious leaders and said, you are judged and all of these things that you propose in your living and all of these things that you are about in your heart and he uncovers them and exposes their hearts before all of the people and he's passing this judgment on them the very ones who have already conspired in their hearts to arrest him and to do away with him and he knows that but it does not stop him and the disciples are there with them Think about the heaviness of that moment. And it's not like everything dispersed and everybody goes to laughing. That's not what takes place. The next thing that he does is he says what he says about Jerusalem. And he says, your house is left desolate. What he's saying is, is I am walking out of here in just a moment. And in walking out of here... This place will be emptied. You as a city will be emptied. He's already told them why. Because they kill the prophets. They kill the ones that God sends and God is sending him. And he is in that moment pronouncing to them again. And you will do the same before weekend. It's incredible. We're able to look at that on the past and look back. But he is saying that they don't yet understand what he's saying. His disciples are not fully aware of what he is saying. But it wasn't everything's going to be okay. There was such a compassion. And he was so compelled that when he makes this statement, for sure they did not walk out of there lighthearted. The Gospel of Luke tells us that even in that situation and in that case, uh, they stayed on for just a little bit and the offerings were coming uh, and this woman came in and gave all that she had. And he points to her and speaks of her and her gift. And then they come out of the temple 
What were the disciples thinking? I, they might have been like we are a lot of times. We walk out of a real heavy situation, and the first thing we want to do, we want to get our minds somewhere else. we got to have something to lighten the load. So they turn their attention and they point to uh, the glory and the wonder of the temple, and rightfully so. Or maybe they came out and things were still so heavy and they realized just how incredible this moment was and what he just said, he said in the temple. Whatever it is that's driving it, they point him and his attention to the temple. And why not? It was one of the great wonders of the world. Historians say that Herod's temple, we know that it took 46 years to build, it was still under construction at the time of Jesus. This complex that had been created there, pure white marble walls overlaid with gold. Historians say that when the sun would shine and would glisten off of the gold, it was almost blinding. That's what they were looking at. Looking at stones that weighed over 200 tons each, 40 feet long, 12 feet high, 12 feet thick, that had been hewn out in the quarries where they had been all in one piece and had been hewn out with precision and brought in place there. They're looking at this, and then Jesus says what He says. And what is it does He say? He said, look at this, see this, see this. He says, I tell you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And in their minds, that's impossible. A couple of weeks ago, I was watching a documentary of the Twin Towers. You know, the same was said about the Twin Towers. I mean, it is said all along, it was impossible for the Twin Towers to be toppled. They went over interview after interview. I'm, this was before all of all that took place on 9-11. They went through interview after interview with people, those who engineered it, those who had designed it, went through the folks who oversaw it and said that these were indestructible buildings. 1,400 feet tall, these massive steel structures. In fact, the head of the Port Authority had said years before that a 737 could run into the Twin Towers and it would not topple it. That was the testimony. They were so magnificent. They, they, they were, in people's minds, indestructible. Except on that day. when two aircraft hit the building. And in less than two hours, and when it began to fall, in less than 10 seconds, they crumbled to the ground. The point is, as we look at this text, in their minds, they are looking at this, and they are saying that in their minds, it is impossible to some degree. There's not a Jew that would have ever said that this edifice could ever be destroyed. They were proud of the temple. They saw it as a blessing from God. They saw it as a, a symbol of their strength. They looked at it as a symbol of hope as they awaited the Messiah to come. 
the promised one of God who would come and would set up shop just like Jesus had done. Set up shop in this temple and would restore them to their glory. That's what they thought. That's what they were looking for. That's what they were hopeful. And Jesus points them and says, that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. There. What's interesting is you know they wanted to say something. They were just so overcome, they didn't say another word. What would we have done if we had been there? The first thing we think is, Jesus, how in the world? This can't be. I, look at, look. Uh, all they, they don't utter a word. Not to Him. We don't have recorded in any of the Gospels where they utter a word until they get back to the Garden of Gethsemane. And Mark's Gospel tells us that it was James and John and Peter and Andrew, the two sets of brothers, that sit down with Jesus and ask Him these questions that they're getting ready to ask Him. Look in verse 3. As He sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to Him privately saying, Tell us when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So here's what they're wanting to know. They are assuming that whatever he said about the temple, that they still are not able to get their minds around, that his coming, and they're not even certain about what they're even saying in that. They know that the Messiah is to come. They have already, Peter has already said that he is the Messiah. He has said that he would, would, would die and then he would be raised. That still has not, we know that that has not registered in their minds. They're still looking for the Messiah to come and to set up shop there, just like all the other Jews are, and the end of the age. And they're thinking that all of that is going to come together. Seems clear. Seems clear that that's what they have in their mind. And then notice what Jesus says. He answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. And they will, <clears throat> they will lead many astray, and you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation. Put you to death. You'll be hated by nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. What's taking place here? Well, Jesus says, one, there will be a delay in all of these things to the end of the age. There'll be a delay. 
Notice what he says, but the end, in verse 6, but the end is not yet. He points them to certain things, but he says the end is not yet. He said, so expect a delay in my return. Expect a delay in my return. Things are not going to happen that quickly. In fact, he says both his return and the end of the age will be delayed. And then he shares with them certain things to expect. And let's just look at the list of things that he says to expect. He says, expect that there will be many false Christs. In other words, there are going to be many who are going to come and say that they are me. They're going to lead many astray. That took place in his day and is still taking place today. Many who says that they are speaking for me, that they are me, that they are of me, and they're leading people astray. He says, don't be led astray. He also says that there will be continual political and ethnic unrest. Wars and rumors of wars. It was so in his day. It is so today. There probably, there may be a hundred wars taking place even right now between ethnic groups in places in the world that we don't know about. But we know that there are always wars and there have always been wars ever since, ever since, Cain took the life of Abel. He says there will be natural disasters. Notice what he says. He says that there will be famines and there will be earthquakes. Every day there is an earthquake. Every day somewhere in the world there is an earthquake. Now they don't all lead to mass destruction. But ever so often, every few years, we hear of an earthquake that leaves a city just, just almost destroyed. We hear about cavities open up and people falling in them. Hadn't been too many years ago. In fact, Nancy, we have relationships, and some of you have relationships of friends in Haiti that began with our meeting them right after the earthquake devastated Port-au-Prince in that area. He said there are going to be earthquakes, natural disasters, and there are going to be famines. I, I looked up in preparation for the day. Are, are, are there any famines today? They are not at their worst, but here are countries right now where there are large groups of people without food due to fam famines. Ethiopia, Somalia, South Sudan, Yemen, Afghanistan, and there are other places throughout the world where famine is an issue for people today. Where crops won't grow. They don't have food. And you say, well, we've got food that we could send to them. And there are those who are trying to get food there. But the point is, is that this has been an ongoing thing. And we see famines throughout the Old Testament. We even recognize and know that there were even famines during the New Testament times and afterwards. But the point is, is all of these things will be taking place. There's a heightened persecution of believers. Look at verse 9. And they will deliver you up to tribulation. That's persecution. And put you to death. In other words, that's what they had to look forward to. And believers ever since then have that to look forward to. We have persecution to look forward to. That's what is expected. The tone of Scripture, as we have said before, and I want, you, I want you to get this, the tone of Scripture is not about the prosperity of believers. It is about the persecution of those who follow Christ. 
That's the overarching tone of Scripture. It's not about how prosperous we have in spite of what Joel Osteen and others like him would say. It's not that. No, the tone of Scripture is about persecution, about hardship, about suffering, about dying, about imprisonment. That's what we saw in the life of the disciples. That's what Jesus has said here. In fact, Jesus almost just never talks about the prosperity. We sang today that God takes care of our needs and provides for those who are living, and He does. But we didn't sing anything about prosperity and greatness. No, the overarching tone of Scripture is that of persecution. He said there will be an increase in lawlessness. Look at what He says. And many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will rise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased. In other words, there is this heightened sense of lawlessness and rejection of authority. Again, that has been true over the course of time ever since, ever, ever since Christ and before. There is this increase in lawlessness. But think about it today, even in relation to our own society and culture. What do we see? We see an increase in lawlessness and a lack of love. People move in a self-preserving, cynical, on-guard, defensive nature where they are not loving and caring for people because they are afraid for their own lives. Afraid for their own lives. There's an overall shift toward hatred. But then notice what Jesus says. Not only can they expect persecution and tribulation, but notice the great tone that is there in verse 14 toward the proclamation of the gospel. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. We have this delay for the purpose these things must happen, he says. Notice what he says back up in verse 6, which points us to the providence of God and His sovereignty in all of this. There must be this delay because there is the grace of God towards sinful humanity that they would hear the proclamation of His Word so that every nation... Every people group, every tongue will hear the gospel. We're still, in that, we're still in that realm. We're still in that mode. That's what the disciples dealt with. That was the reason why Paul set out and began the missionary journeys and others followed him. That's the reason that we go out and do what we do and should be about that in our community and the reason why we go other places to share the gospel and proclaim the gospel. Why? Because Jesus has said, I have delayed at least for this purpose. So there is the delay in this that is part of the grace and mercy of God toward the lost. But notice this. What does Jesus say? In the midst of the persecution and all that's taking place, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Endures what? Well, the one that endures the deception the one that endures the persecution and hardship, the one who endures to the end will be saved. What does that say to us today? Well, it tells us today, as we sang earlier, that we would just persevere. Those who remain 
faithful to the end are the ones who will be saved. Now let's look at verse 15. And so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Let the reader of what understand? Let the reader of Daniel seems to be, let the reader of Daniel understand. But there are those who say let this parenthetical statement there is there for those who would read this. And that could be true as well. But the point is, is that Daniel had spoken of this uh, abomination of desolation. In other words, this act that would take place, this sinful act that would take place, that would leave, and Daniel said, that would leave the temple desolate. There are portions of Daniel where folks look back and say clearly in history that this took place with uh, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes in 168 B.C., uh, about a about 190 years before Christ, that that had taken place. uh, Where he had come in and uh, he had uh, set up uh, uh, in the temple, had taken over the temple and and set up uh, an altar to a foreign god over the altar of God. And he began to uh, sacrifice pigs uh, there in the temple. And we know that the result of that was the Maccabean revolt and how that came to his end. But the point is, is that Jesus says, listen back at the prophet. Seems to be pointing back to something that Daniel has had to say, maybe even something in history that has already taken place, to say that this can happen again. In other words, there's not just the one abomination of desolation, where there were about 40,000 Jews killed then, but that there may be another. And this is where some would say, Jesus is speaking specifically here, of the fall of the temple that would in Jerusalem that would take place about 40 years after Christ in 70 AD. But let's hear what he has to say. But then let those who are in Judea, and it seems to be, again, restricted to this region of the world, okay? Restricted to this region of the world. But there are things to hear from this, that those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, Let the one who is on the housetop not go down and take what is in the house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. What is he saying? He says, when you see the evidence of this getting ready to take place, understand you need to go then. Don't go back to the house to get anything. Don't go down and grab your valuables. If you are a pregnant or nursing mother, understand that, the, that it will be, it'll be imperative for you to go, but it's going to be incredibly hard. Just like traveling in Palestine during the winter was hard. The roads were wet and muddy. It was hard to get, get around. You traveled on the Sabbath. Well, what didn't take place on the Sabbath? Folks didn't open their gates up. They they were not helpful on the Sabbath because they were observing the Sabbath. The point is, is that there is an urgency when we see these things take place. There is this great sense of urgency. What was it like in 70 AD when Jerusalem fell and the temple was destroyed and there wasn't one stone left on another? 
Well, three days before Passover in 70 A.D., the Romans came and laid siege to Jerusalem. And it had been an ongoing thing because they had devastated Judea. And as was the case most of the time, the capital city was, after everything else had gone on, people were flocking to the city. There were people from all over, Jews from all over the known world, who had come back there for Passover, even with everything going on the way that it was going on. They went back to Jerusalem for Passover. You know what took place there? Inside of the city walls, in a matter of three days, one million Jews died. One million. Josephus recorded one million Jews died. Another hundred thousand were taken prisoner. That was just what was there in the city of Jerusalem. They ran out of supplies. There was no food. So what did they do? They resorted to eating each other. They died of diseases and sicknesses. But then when the army came, the army slaughtered the men and the women. These were non-combatants, as we would call it today in our day. In fact, it went down in history as probably the most non-combatant death toll in a city from war of ever. That's what they did. And they came in and they destroyed the temple and burned it. You know what's not in Jerusalem today? The temple's not in Jerusalem. For almost 1960 years, there has been no temple. Now I want you to think about this for just a moment. When Jesus walked out of the temple that day, before He walked out, He said to Jerusalem, Your house is laid desolate. He walks out, His disciples point back to the temple, And Jesus said not one stone will be left on another. That it is going to be laid bare. Not one stone will be left on another. Do you remember, we mentioned it last week, but do you remember the first Passover of Jesus' ministry? And He went into the temple and cleaned the temple courts. And they asked Him, by what authority did He do that? And He went on to say, He said, you destroy this temple And in three days, I'll build it back. They thought he was talking about that temple because they said, are you crazy? It's taken 46 years to get this. And you're going to build it back in three days? And then we hear from John. He was speaking about his own body. What he was pointing to in all of this is that salvation does not come through this building. The presence of God is no longer tied and associated to this building. In just a few days, He knows that that curtain will be torn, and from that point on, there will be no need to go back to that building for anything as it pertains to salvation. In fact, you know what the greatest thing that took place in that temple after Christ's resurrection was the preaching and witnessing of the gospel. Everything else, for those next 40 years, they continued to observe Passover. 
For the next 40 years, they kept going in there and they kept sacrificing. I can see them now. They took the, they took the veil of the temple down and, 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 and the best seamstress got out and they sewed it up or they made another one or they did something and they put it back up. Anyway, all of that was taking place and none of it meant a thing because it was desolate. And he's pointing to that. And in verse 21, he says, For then there will be great tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there He is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise, and they'll perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray if possible, even the elect. I want you to hear that. That's the season and the times. That's what he was pointing to. He said there is going to be great tribulation, great persecution. These things are going to take place. And he said there are going to be people that are cropping up and saying, hey, the Christ is out over there in this room. The Christ is out in the wilderness. But here's the next thing that Jesus says. Not only is he going to be delayed and the end of time is going to be delayed and it is not going to fit them second we looked at there is going to be this proclamation of the gospel that's going to go to the ends of the earth but the third thing is is his coming is not going to go unnoticed notice what he says you don't run out there what does he say he says see i've told you beforehand so that if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. And if they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. You ever seen lightning pierce across the sky? It doesn't go unnoticed, does it? Oh no, we see bolts of lightning tracking across the sky. That's what he said. Don't go out there. My coming is not going to be like that. When I come again, it will not go unnoticed. You won't have to worry about going and trying to find me in a room, and you won't have to worry about going out and trying to visit me somewhere in a wilderness. He says, it will be visible for all to see. And then he points to another example. He says, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. I grew up hunting, loved to hunt. Uh, pretty good shot most of the time, but as is the case, sometimes animals are wounded. And you do not find them where you expect to find them. And at times, even with hunters, as bad as it is, they don't find what they have shot. But you know when they find it and how they find it. They just wait for the buzzards. The buzzards will soon tell them where they can find the corpse. Jesus said, you won't have to worry about wondering where I am, just like you don't have to wonder about where the corpses are. If they are left out, the vultures will be there. Look in verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. And the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, 
and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end to the other. The other thing that Jesus says, and no matter how we look at this text, it points to these two things. Before He comes, there are going to be catastrophic events that have never been seen before. I want you to think about this for just a moment. The sun doesn't shine anymore. The moon doesn't shine anymore. And we could say, well, those can take place with a clip, with, with, with a lunar uh, eclipse or with an eclipse of the sun and that is true but nevertheless the sun darkens the moon darkens and take that to mean all at the same time and stars fall from the sky i've tried to picture this in my mind some stars i'm thinking the stars fall from the sky i'm thinking that in creation remember we went over creation last sunday afternoon and we remember that Jesus placed the sun and the moon and the stars uh, there uh, in, the, in, in, the, in space in His creation. And then all of that goes away. All of that goes away. And what do we see? And then we see the Son of Man coming. That's the reason He said, you're not going to have to wonder when I show up. But here are the two things that take place. And I want to draw your attention to them. And please get this is that His coming, as they have been saying, the end of the age, His coming results in two things. The judgment of those who have rejected Him. Adam pointed to that earlier in our confession. There are only two groups of people. The judgment of those who have rejected Him and the salvation of the elect, those who have trusted Him. And there's no other group. And here's the point. Here's the point. And we'll see this a little bit later as we track through the rest of this little piece of the text. What we see and understand is that there's no other opportunity now to make any kind of decisions. When He returns, decision time is over. He has delayed for the purpose of the proclamation of the gospel so that folks can be forewarned and can be called to salvation. And when that occurs, and He returns, when He is coming, the people are mourning. They are in awe. They are mourning. The elect are not mourning. The elect are looking forward to His coming and should because it means their salvation. The lost are gripped by the fact that here is something that has taken place that seemed impossible. God returning? Was it really true that Jesus was coming back? Somebody told me that. I laughed at them, told them they were crazy. Yeah, right. And the world's going to end? Yeah, right. The temple's going to be torn down? Yeah, right. The twin towers are going to be toppled in 10 seconds. And he'll come back in the twinkling of an eye. 
Verse 32. From the fig tree learn this lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that He is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Notice what doesn't pass away. Heaven and earth has passed away. His word holds true. I was thinking about that this week. What did he mean when he says that his words, his word will not pass away? Well, one, his word, his breath, his life does not go anywhere. He is eternal. But I thought about how should we hear that? I think at least we should hear it at this point. His promises doesn't go away. His word of salvation doesn't go away. His word of judgment doesn't go away. His word of hope doesn't go away. His judgment will stand. So those whom He comes and judges, that judgment will stand for all eternity. For those who are saved, who have heard the word of salvation, and have heard, well done, my good and faithful servant, that holds for all eternity. The hope even now that we, are, that we have in looking ahead to the end, that hope doesn't go away. Verse 36, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Now I want to tell you what that doesn't mean. And I, and I, ha- I read a book one time, almost got caught up in it. <laughs> about a millisecond we can't know today in an hour but it doesn't mean that we can't know the week and the month and the year that wasn't what Jesus had in mind here we can't know the week the month and the year he's given us all these things that when whoever's there whenever we're there if that comes in our lifetime we will know this But he said, I know you want to know on the day that this is going to take place. We do, don't we? I mean, young family starts out. They decide to have a family. The lady gets pregnant. She goes to the doctor. And what do they want to know? The first thing they want to know is what day is it going to come? That's one question. The next question now for most everybody is, is well, what is it going to be? Well, it's, it's going to be a, a little person. It's not going to be a, a, a monkey or something. It's going to be a little person. It's going to be a little boy or a little girl. There are only two options. It's going to be one or the other. But the day, we want to know the day. We're curious to that degree. We want to know the day. And Jesus headed that off. He just said, no, you're not going to know that. He said, in fact, I don't even know that. As He had submitted to the Father. And we don't understand. We, Jesus knows everything. Yeah, He knows everything. But at least He said at that point, in His Sonship, He said, only the Father knows this. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And He goes on to explain what that means. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating, drinking, marrying, giving a marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. 
and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be at the grinding mill, one will be taken and one left. And here's the point. This is the point. Therefore, stay awake for you do not know what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what part of the night the thief was coming, you know what he would have done? He'd have been awake. He would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming. When? At any hour you do not expect. What's Jesus saying? Be ready and be watchful. That's what he was telling his disciples. That's what every other generation should have read in that. This is what we should be hearing. Not wondering, has this happened or that happened? No. Be ready. What does that mean? That means trust Christ and be ready for His return. And once we have trusted Christ and are ready for His return, then we remain watchful living with the understanding that He can return at any moment. And then in verse 45, Who then is faithful? Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom His masters has set over His household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if the wicked servant says to himself, my master's delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus says, be ready. He says, be watchful and be faithful. Remember what he said earlier? It's not the first time we've heard it. Back over in verse 13, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Those who are ready, meaning that they have trusted the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who are watchful, who live with the expectation that Jesus can come any day. And those who are faithful. Faithful in what respect? The tone of that text is faithful in the proclamation of the gospel. Faithful in speaking truth to those who have not yet trusted Christ. Why? That's their only hope for salvation. Their only hope. Jesus had been good to us, hadn't He? He didn't leave us unaware of what to expect. And He was kind and gracious and delaying at least for us, 
to have had the opportunity to hear the gospel and to trust Him. If you're here today and you haven't trusted Christ, God delayed. Christ could have come yesterday and your opportunity would not be here today. You can bypass Him today. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm just saying that's what the text says, isn't it? You could, you, you could miss the opportunity today. And He could return this afternoon. And then there would be no more opportunities. And for us as believers, are, are we living along through the course of each day thinking, you know what? I know it's possible for Jesus to come back today or tomorrow or in my lifetime. But it ain't likely. So I'm going to live the way that I want to live. Please don't make that mistake. Please don't.